and welcome to Divine Renovation, the podcast. My name's Dan O'Rourke, and along with me today is Ron Huntley. How you doing, Ron? Great, Dan. Thank you. So it's so good to see you, Ron. Uh, for those who don't know, you are our coach extraordinaire. Uh, for the Divine Renovation Network, and you're you're the you're on the front lines of coaching pastors around the world right now. A lot of fun, and also is Father James Mellon, author of the Divine Renovation book, which in the last pot time we recorded, he kept referring to it as the book, and I kind of chuckled every time he said it. It's like, we, we do have another book that sometimes we refer to as the book, but, yeah. uh, but not to diminish the, the book. Uh, Divine Renovation is, is the book he wrote. Uh, how long ago now was it? A year and a half, two years ago? Two and a half. Um, I can't remember. Oh my goodness, uh, time has flown. It was published in September 2014. September 2014. Yeah. So it was around this time of year, three years ago, that I finished the first draft. Cool. So you are well-rested and ready to write the next one. It's good to see you, Father. It's nice to be back in this room with both of you. Uh, this is part two of, uh, of of podcast. Last time we were together, we, we talked about bishops. Um, I thought we had a great conversation. We talked a little bit about, you know, recognizing the challenges they have and... and, and being fair to to the real struggles that they're in and appreciating uh, the the contributions they're making even within those struggles, but then we talk through some some real uh, approaches that they might want to uh, to go, to employ to start to turn things around, perhaps. But let's talk a little about decline because I think a lot of bishops are find themselves in dioceses that are actually not just in stasis; they're not just in maintenance, yeah. but they're in actual decline, yeah, like free fall even. Yeah, it's what, one of the things I used to say about the subtitle of the book from maintenance from a maintenance to a missional parish. the book you did it again <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Uh, divine renovation because it you know f- and maintenance is actually a ton of work and there's actually there are actually sure very is. few parishes actually doing maintenance the vast majority are actually in decline they're declining and dioceses all over the western world in europe uh in even the united states and canada are experiencing uh, rapid decline in france i was in France in October this past year, and I met a priest who had, was the pastor of 37 parishes. What? 37 parishes. Oh. He's a pastor of 37 parishes? Yes. He is a cluster. He is responsible for 37 different parishes. How's that even? Okay. Well, that's the, that's the thing. You say, wow. well, how, how bad does it have to get? And before we actually change what we're doing, it can get pretty bad. Wow. You think you're, you think you're bad with two parishes right now? It's a long way to go before we get 37, and we're still doing it the same way, essentially. Oh, man, you're so, killing me. so those are some of the, the struggles because we, you're, we're managing decline. And, and what does that mean? We're, we're basically doing palliative care with, with, with our diocese, um, with individual churches. We're slowly watching them die. We know that the dying is, is, is happening, and we're just prolonging it, prolonging it. And it's like, let's just uh, pretend. Let's just not pay attention to the fact that if you look, you see the direction of which it's going. I often think of, um, you know, there's an old saying that he who defends everything defends nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you're in a, a, you know, say in a battle, World War One, and you've got a huge front line, and when the enemy attacks, and we are under attack by the enemy uh, mm-hmm. in, in in many ways, that you you you've got to pull back. But what's the purpose of a strategic withdrawal? Is to go is to establish a new defensive line, and then hold the line, and then eventually go on the offensive. You know, and we're, as a church, we're called to go on the offensive. Matthew 16, uh, you are Peter, and upon the rock I will build my church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound, whatever you loose and loose. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And most people, when they hear that, think they think, oh yeah, the gates of heaven are going to we all we have an image in our minds of the gates of heaven being hammered by the by the enemies of the church, and they're not going to knock down the gates. But no, it says the gates of hell shall not prevail. It's talking about the church going on the attack, and we're gonna. It's saying you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna kick you know what. You, the <laughs> gates of hell are not going to be able to stand the attack of the church. The church is to go on the offensive. But we're, we've, we've got bloodied, a bloodied nose. We've had a bloodied nose for decades now, and we're retreating and retreating, and, and, we're, and we're trying to maintain the line all along. And, and, and if you do that, you risk the whole thing falling apart. Yeah. And I think bishops, they see this in many dioceses. They know it's happening, but they don't know what to do. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're helpless. And it's, and it's almost to, to, to not defend everything is, is, is not an option. But you've, you've got to... You've you've got to restructure a, a diocese that's facing decline has got to ultimately face the challenge of submitting infrastructure to mission. 
So what do you mean when you talk about infrastructure to mission? What does that even mean? I mean the the, the structure of the diocese, the number of buildings, the number of parishes, uh, um, keeping everything open when when it's just plugging holes and the thing and the ship continues to sink. And we, you know, often in many dioceses, the infrastructure we've got is from a bygone era. You've got cities, you know, with a, a different parish church every half mile. And the days when when Catholics were ghettoized in ethnic communities, and there was the Polish church and the French church and this church and the Irish church, and and um, and we still keep all of these parishes open in in some some ways. Uh, so people are very attached to their buildings, and they don't they don't want their their, their buildings to be closed. So. For a long time, uh, we we show by our actions that that we will actually sacrifice the work that we ought to be doing towards the mission, and and have as our primary value keeping everything open or keeping everything going. So uh, help me understand because there's two ways that I can understand the word decline. I mean, there's decline in terms of the number of people who are showing up to church on Sunday. Yeah. That's one type of decline. But there's a decline in the number of pastors, perhaps, and priests in a, in a diocese. That's totally different, right? Never thought of that. And so, like, there's two angles to this. Mm-hmm. And and so, like, I got less soldiers, and I got less, less, less you know, I've got the same number of te- amount of territory. Yeah, less generals. There's <laughs> yeah. the right there. Remember that analogy. Yeah. So so, uh, is the, the approach? Are you suggesting that you know to ma- how how would you manage the, the, the two types of decline? I guess. Well, you, you've got to have a, a concentration of, of resources. To, again, enough. You're going to have a critical mass to go on the offensive. So, because if you don't, if you if you just just keep main, just keep babysitting the decline, you you risk losing everything, everything, because over time, uh, over over time, you know, resources. A parish that's declining that has X amount of money in the bank can you lean on those resources. And, and whittle it away so that 10 years later, uh, there's no resources left and the thing is still there and is still declining. Whereas if you were bold and actually did a restructuring to concentrate those resources, put someone, you know, restructure this parish, this, the, the, this area, so that you can actually have a, a sufficient team to lead the thing. And, and and then you, at least you might start going in, the, in a different direction. Well, it's interesting, Father James, because when we did the Divine Renovation Conference in 2016, I remember a, a pastor pulling me aside and had some really interesting questions. And he was responsible for five other priests and five other parishes. And we talked a little bit about it. And he was so frustrated because of he wasn't getting the results and there was toxicity in his but they were great men he had incredible respect and love for these men but collectively they were not winning and i started talking to him about how he led and how he talked to people and it took me about all of five seconds to figure out oh my gosh you're crushing these people whom you are supposed to be pastoring and i started calling him out on some of his behaviors his attitudes and the things he was doing and he realized it almost instantaneously he literally started to cry uh, and he had his right hand person in the room a lady that was with him um, and he realized oh my gosh what have i done and so often i think we lead with good intentions but we don't have the skill sets we don't have the the help we don't have somebody coming alongside of us who are who's willing to call us out on the things that yeah. we're blind to that are having a horrible impact on the people that we're supposed to be inspiring and leading and that's why when you restructure you've, you've got to set the new pastor up for success you can't just say you know congratulations you now have seven parishes and that's the difference between between clustering and amalgamation. Because really, when you when you when you look at restructuring, the the options are, you know, you're a parish priest of one parish. You wake up the next day and you've got two parishes. Then six months later, you've got three. And then a year later, you've got four parishes. Then five, and you basically got three of everything, four of everything, three pastoral councils, three finance councils, three bank accounts. You're, you're just multiplying the weight of that administrative work and all the buildings you have to maintain. Like, like. Like it's almost like the sacrificing the priest because the priest is the, yeah. is the one who has to carry this, and it is fundamentally unjust. Uh, and I think that that clustering, um, I, I I I can't think of a situation where that can be a good thing, because you're you're postponing the inevitable. It's 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 almost an illusion. We're gonna we're gonna pretend that you're still a parish when really you're not, and and the weight all falls on the priest. And I've met so many priests. Who are who are being crushed by that? Does and, clustering happen a lot? Like, is oh, this yes, a thing? Yes, it's the most common thing, because amalgamation is much more painful. Amalgamation actually means we're going to actually 
uh, canonically, legally make you one entity. And of course, people freak out. You're closing my parish. And so there's more letters of complaint and, and bishops are shy of doing that. And even pastors uh, are shy to actually lead that kind of change. But in the long Don't run, that's the, that's the one that's going to give you the most life because you have one of everything. And I, I led an amalgamation in my last parish before I came here. It was a difficult, challenging thing, but um, it was the right direction. And St. Benedict Parish exists because of an amalgamation. If this had been a cluster, we we probably would have nothing. We but three small stunted parishes slowly dying. And one burnt out priest. And one burned out priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think amalgamation is it has essential to take priority. is it essential in an amalgamation to, to centralize in one building? Not necessarily. Uh, buildings once it's just like any any organization, once you are legally and canonically one uh, then you have to decide what is the best use of your buildings for the mission that you have. So in our diocese, in some instances, uh, amalgamated parishes kept their buildings open. Others uh, moved to one. Uh, and in the case of here, St. Benedict Parish, all three were closed and sold, and one new, brand new one was built. With not uh, enough parking. With not enough parking, I know, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I think amalgamation versus clustering, because clustering, you're just postponing the inevitable, and you're killing your priests, bishops, if any bishops are in fact listening to this, which is, I don't know if they ever will, but please don't cluster. Please don't do that to your priests. It's mm. killing us. It's killing us. Mm. Go with amalgamation. Uh, it's painful in the short term, but it will produce much more fruit for the kingdom. You're challenging them to be brave on that. Because I mean, what, what I heard you say was that clustering is the easier path. For the bishop. Right. And for the, in some ways, for the priest. In and other be, ways, not for the priest. Because it, frankly, it's also easier for the various parish communities. Right, I mean, that's that's we what didn't close my building. Yeah, nothing's closed, changed so for me. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> I remember when I when I was first. Uh, this is about fifteen, about eleven years ago. I was in the the city, and I had a you know a medium sized parish. And the following year, I was given the as pastor the parish down the down the road, about a mile down the road, and they wanted me basically to do two of everything. They wanted to be a distinct parish. I was to be pastor of two different distinct parishes, and I just said absolutely not. I'm not going to do it. Uh, th- no. So uh, we went through the whole process of, of slowly, you know, becoming one pastoral council, one finance committee, uh, slowly over a couple of years, merging the thing together to become one parish. And it was painful, but it, it, it was life-giving as well. You know, one of the things, too, that I think to myself, not that it would ever happen to me because I'm a layperson, but I think to myself, I know people don't want to get rid of their building. I know people don't want to close their local community church. But... I would say to them, listen, I don't want to close it either, but how many people have we brought into a relationship with Christ in the last couple of years? If we're not growing, if all we're doing is servicing our people, then we can sort of do that in another building. But if you don't want to close this, then let's learn what evangelization looks like. Let's learn what it means to connect with this generation in a way that that brings them to a personal relationship with Christ and they desire the sacraments. They desire the the richness of the church. And if we can do that, if we can start to grow, guess what? We're not going to close your church. We'll probably have to add on. That would be the challenge. Because if they're not they don't want to close their church and they're not going to do a darn thing to reach out to people in the name of Jesus Christ, then you know what? <laughs> I don't have a problem closing that at all. Yeah, as, as, as Kerry Newhoff says, selfish churches are like selfish people. They eventually die all by themselves. And that, that, that's the truth of it. So the, the other thing under restructuring, it's not just a question of, of amalgamating versus clustering. I think, too, we've got to, in some dioceses, they're really struggling uh, with personnel and with numbers. And, and here in Nova Scotia, in the rural areas of Nova Scotia, are losing people, uh, not just the church, but, but people are leaving those communities and going to bigger cities. So the rural areas are really, really, really struggling. And they often have a church building with very few people that, that, are, that are there. And we're at the point now where there, there are simply no priests. But again, if we have model parishes that are healthy, even in, in the suburbs... Uh, there's the whole idea of, of possible partnerships that uh, a rural parish uh, could possibly, and maybe I'm, 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 um, I'm contradicting what I've said because in canon law, the, the pastor uh, has to be an ordained priest. And so even though uh, maybe a layperson or a deacon would, would ad- be the administrator on the ground in that parish, the canonical pastor has to be, has to be a priest. So, Oftentimes, when that happens in declining, declining dioceses, it's, it's the geographically close big parish 
who become who defaults to being the pastor of that territory of that that parish. But imagine if there was an intentional partnership between a a suburban church that had come to a place of health and was able to partner with with a rural church in a in a unique way. They might not be able to have sacraments or the Eucharist every week because of the lack of priests, but through technology like for instance here at St. Benedict we have a really great live stream and you could set up um you know the faithful could gather there and maybe every other week they would have the Eucharist, but in these places where there were parishes, perhaps they can form groups like our connect groups where people gather together to uh, share faith, to, to pray together, to share a meal together and, and encourage each other to grow. Like I think we really have to begin to look radically yeah. at different ways of doing different things. Otherwise, options. we truly risk the whole thing being lost. And it'd be a lot of fun, too. Like, I think about us and the resources we have in terms of people and, and just how passionate they are and the different principles that we've put into place and seeing fruit. And It would be so much fun to help a rural church. I have no idea how to do it, but boy, would it ever be fun to well, try. Well, that, that's the whole thing. There's, there's, there's so much now we don't have any idea how we do it. That's why we we can't have the, the solo leader all by himself anymore. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about how bishops have to, um, you know, they, they have a, a, a big task and they're not always well formed for it from the, the, the various training opportunities. Um, but as a leader of uh, a diocese, what are some of the steps they really need to take in order to set themselves up for success? Uh, well, you know, we've experienced here at the parish just the last couple of years um, uh, employing uh, what, we, what we call a senior leadership team uh, in, in using many of the principles outlined in the writings of Patrick Lencioni. And for me as a leader, I, I describe it as, as the difference between leading a team and leading out of a team. They're two very, very different things. I mean, in my early challenges to lead, when I realized I didn't have a clue what I was doing, I learned how to lead a team. I learned how to kind of be, okay, everyone, rah-rah, here's where we're going. Let's go, let's do it, let's do it. Follow me, right? And, and I brought that attitude of leadership to this parish, and I said the same thing. Here we go, here's the plan. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And it worked. People, the whole thing moved until all of a sudden I realized... I don't know what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> okay, people have followed me and, and we've actually moved further than I've ever moved before and now I don't have a clue. I don't know. I still know where I want to go but I no longer know how to get there and I was terrified and I felt very alone and isolated and almost like I can't let them know that I don't, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. What will they think? Mm-hmm. But the point is that that is the situation I think that most bishops find themselves in. They see the decline. They see all these things and even if they decide to, to go off in another direction, to actually to lead, it's like they don't know what to do. They, they, they don't know. This is no one's ever, this is new, new ground. And so I as a leader knew that I need to bring people around me who can help me to lead, help me to make the best decisions because I have blind spots, I have certain gifts, but I have a whole bunch of weaknesses. And by myself, I'm a train wreck. Uh, I... So I often say when I speak to priests that there's no such thing as a well-rounded person, but there is a well-rounded team. And I found this as such an incredible benefit to my leadership in the parish. And I'm thinking, why don't bishops do this? Mm-hmm. Why don't bishops? I think bishops so often are, there, there are some decisions and burdens they can share with their, with their executive staff. Most mm-hmm. bishops will meet with their executive staff who, who head up different departments. But there's always decisions that they that they're absolutely alone with, and they feel they can't share with anyone. Mm-hmm. They may share with a priest uh, or like a vicar general or a vicar for clergy. They might share a particular problem. But then you've got two people, and even two people are still going to have blind spots. I mean, Pat Lencioni says you, you need a minimum of four people and maybe a maximum of six. And the idea of a leadership team is are people who come around you who have got the same vision, committed to the exact same vision as you have. Uh, because if you're committed to vision, that gives you the freedom to disagree on how you're going to get there. Mm. The, the second necessity is is a balance of strengths. And Ron, why do you say a little bit about that? Because even using like we use Clifton Strengths Finder here, mm. and the 34 themes of talent, and those themes can be put into four categories. Yeah, and so the four categories are executing, influence, relationship, and strategic. And for for Father James, for example, he has three of his top five strength themes in. In influence, 
And we always laugh around here because sometimes he says things and it just causes things to go into motion. He doesn't even know what's happening. Uh, and then we have Kate, who's just excellent in terms of executing. She's really strong in understanding all the different moving parts. And then we have Rob, who's a learner and he's a researcher and he has very strategic in his thinking. And I'm three of my top five are in relationships. So we all bring a different sensitivity to the decisions we're making and where we want to go. And it really does. I, I get so excited about the decisions we make. I don't know how many times I've gone in there thinking I'm definitely right and I'm winning this one. And the decisions that come out are totally different and way better. I never leave meetings. Uh, actually, maybe a couple times I left thinking they weren't good decisions. But <laughs> later on in prayer, I came to the conclusion that it was the right thing. And, and the, the thing is that you know what we bring to these meetings are are tactical decisions these are the decisions that need to be made you can't keep putting them off and they're not sometimes they're things you don't even anticipate but you realize a decision needs to be made but you don't know what the right decision is you're not sure why because you're in new territory you're in new grounds um, and so this is why leading out of a team is, is, is so important. And it's not about consensus building, not about coming no. to consensus. This is very important. Uh, consensus generally will just, you'll just kind of shave a thing down until you get to the lowest common denominator. That's not what we're talking about. The bishop must exercise leadership. The bishop's got to lead. And that means even if there's different opinions, he's got to listen. People have got to know that they've been heard. And at the end of the day, if there's no clarity of direction, the leader still has to make the decision, he has to make the call. But one of the other conditions for, for this to work, there's, there's unanimity of vision. Uh, we call this the, the four non-negotiables of a, of a senior leadership team, balance of gifts. The third one is healthy conflict and trust. Mm-hmm. And this is a big one for bishops. Uh, I'm sure every priest or bishop listening, especially because of every, every bishop was once a priest. <laughs> Have you ever? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been at a council of priests meeting where... Everyone knows, like, people are not really saying what they think. <laughs> people, are, people are not. And, it's, and it makes Obvious. for, a, for a, an absolutely excruciating meeting because you know that people are not being honest. There's issues that are not being dealt with. There, there's like the elephant in the living room or, and, or people disagree. And it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's like, obviously, we can't openly disagree, especially with the bishop. No, because you know, people don't trust each other, do they? There's or you can't offend the trust. bishop out of I think yeah. a sense of respect. I, I want to respect the, the office of bishops. I'm not going to I'm not going to challenge him or or, or disagree with him. Mm-hmm. And and so what hap- often happens is the bishop might have the form of a leadership team. He may have these people around him. And generally in, in the past in the church, the council of priests were meant to be that for a bishop. But the council of priests in many ways is like a parish council in a parish. Like, to to really operate with these tactical issues. The council of priests would have to meet with the bishop once a week. Uh, we don't have time for that. I mean, mo- most that doesn't happen. So it must. It's like a pastoral council. Having a pastoral council doesn't mean that you still don't need a leadership team. So, but what often happens is is people people don't actually say what they think. They don't challenge the bishop to, out of a, a desire to respect his role. Uh, but everyone loses when that happens. One one of the things too, I just like to say because I know because of the gifts and diversity of it, I've seen pastors in our Divine Renovation uh, network who brought people onto their senior leadership team who were contrary. And so they thought that that was a good thing because they brought different ideas, but they they brought a totally different attitude and a different vision. You need to have mutual respect. These people need to be people of vision and capacity because you need to value their opinions strongly because and on board with the vision yes. of the bishop because that's the primary task of leadership is to, is to form and communicate vision the the bishop is the chief shepherd of a diocese no parish can form vision for his parish without reference to the bishop's vision there's got mm-hmm. to be communication there but even at the parish level or the diocesan level unanimity of vision is absolutely fundamental because if you have two visions you have division and division at the top will create division throughout the organization, yeah. throughout the diocese. And But here's the other thing. Unanim- absolute unanimity of vision opens the door to have absolute disagreement about strategy <laughs> and tactics. And it's fun. And it's fun because <laughs> in our experience, you know, we will have passionate – We, Ron and I, anyone listening, they were talking here, Ron and I sometimes are in each other's faces. We sometimes get up – we get very passionate and totally disagree with each other. But I know, I know that's a safe thing to do, number one, because I know he loves me. 
Uh, we have we trust each other, and I know he'd give his life for, the, for what we're doing. He'd lay down his life, and that's the same with every member of our senior leadership team. Uh, so it makes for some rollicking meetings, I'll tell you, uh, but it's based on on that trust. Uh, Pat Lancioni says, conflict without trust is politics. Mm. But when you can have healthy conflict with trust, you you get you load the table uh, with with insight and, and and you are able to make the best decisions. I gotta believe that there's a lot of bishops that that can only dream of having that sort of that 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 an SLT, a senior leadership team that has that degree of trust, openness, and somewhere that he can actually go and have those kinds of, of conversations. I imagine it's not common. So if a bishop called you tomorrow and said, look, you know, Father James, I, I heard this podcast and you said I should have an, a, a senior leadership team. Who the heck should I put on it? What are you going to tell them? I get the Buy the Divine Renovation Guidebook. There's a whole chapter yes. on building a leadership team with four exercises, how to discern it. Um that's what I would. That's what I would recommend. Because the final thing, there's so there's the the four things. There's unanimity of vision, a balance of strengths, healthy conflict and trust, and the final one is vulnerability. Now that doesn't mean that your leadership team is your support group where you go and talk about your problems and whatever. It, it means that we're. You know, the traditional method of leadership was you were to be aloof and removed, especially the bishop, prince of the church. You know, you're you're to be almost like inhuman, almost. Well, bishops are people too. You know, like they've got a heart, and they they heart. And sometimes vulnerability in a leadership team means that I enable myself to be challenged. Like even in our experience, like mm-hmm. like priests and bishops, we need to be held to accountability as well, because often there's no accountability. And one of the hardest things in our leadership team meetings is when. Uh, I will violate a principle that I've helped to establish. These guys don't let me get away with it. They call me out on it. Uh, and in one sense, it kills me, and it's very—it's almost frustrating. But and I'm so grateful for it, for it. But the other thing too is to be able to say the vulnerability is able to say, "I don't know what to do here," mm. or "I'm afraid," or I, "I really don't know." You know, I, I I made a mistake. That kind of vulnerability is is what we're talking about. Not you know, we're each other's. You know, it's not like a support group. Uh, so. <laughs> That's that's what we're t- talking about, and I think it's. Um, do you think they stick with diocesan staff, or do they should they look at parish priests as well, as being on their team? Probably couldn't be parish, couldn't couldn't be pastors because they're going to be too busy, wouldn't you say, Father James? Or probably, yeah, it'd be pretty hard to bring a, a pastor in for a weekly meeting because he's going to have his own meetings as well. So I think you're really looking at at either pastoral center staff or key lay people who would be able to 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 be there to be to be a part of it. Um, yeah. In some ways, it can help if they're close to the action as well, but it doesn't have to be positional leadership. Uh, some SLTs are able to get the the right people who fit all those categories, and and they're in positions of of, of positional leadership. So they have the, the head of this or the head of this de- department. But start in, in the guidebook. We have this exercise where you make a, like a broad list. Who are, who are all the potential people who could be on your on your on your senior leadership team. And then the first thing is unanimity of vision. Who's who's absolutely sold out? And by the way, unanimity of vision, being on board with a vision does not mean a person is intellectually bought in. Oh, it's like, yes, I intellectually support this vision. Yes, I do. I see it's the, it's the right thing to do. Vision is a picture of the future that makes you passionate. So what, who you want on your leadership team are people who are passionate about the things that you are passionate about. When you as a bishop think of the future of your diocese, if anything was possible in the next 20 years, what would your diocese look like? Now, don't give me a plan. Paint me a picture. Tell me what it sounds like, looks like, smells like, tastes like. And 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 you want people who are passionate in the same way you're passionate, not just intellectual buy-in. Right. Do you structure that vision with your senior leadership team or do you, do you gift it to them? Well, vi- vision is is something that is really born in the heart of a leader. Uh, you, can't demo- you can't create vision by democratic process. The role of the leader, it's, it's, it's in the heart of the leader. And, uh, but then the vision has to be sold in a sense that it has to be caught. It needs to be uh, presented in a way that, that, that makes people want it. And that means that the, the, there's got to be pitched. It's got to be communicated in a way that, that stirs up people's hearts. I know my, I think of my own bishop, 
this is one of his incredible gifts. He when he speaks vision, mm-hmm. man, I feel like I, I charge across <laughs> no man's land. But he just he gets me pumped up like it's a, like what when he talks about the dream for the future, it is so inspiring. And that's the kind of thing you want. Uh, eventually, sometimes it helps to, to put stuff in writing, but the primary thing is not the things in writing. It's 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 the fire and, and the passion. So let's let's assume then that you've got a bishop who suddenly you know has that passion. Uh, he's communicated. He's structured a, a senior leadership team, and now he's going to start doing the th- all sorts of things. Where's the line drawn? Where, where where does the diocese stop working and the parish start? That's a good point, because I know sometimes it must be frustrating, and I'm guessing, but I sometimes I see dioceses where, and I've talked to bishops where they've been really passionate and their hearts breaking because even though they've invested in a great strategic plan, they're passionate, they have dreams and hopes, they don't see it being actioned by their priests in a way that's bearing fruit, and they themselves feel like they have mm-hmm. to start doing it, and that must be so frustrating, and and difficult, but. It's it, there's got to be a place where things start and stop. I don't know. I'm, what do I'm pretty sure if every diocese in the world, if you gathered all the strategic plans that have ever been written <laughs> since <laughs> since 1971 uh, that are in the archives of archdioceses all over North America, even uh, you could and if you stack them up one on top of the other, you could probably reach the moon. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of strategic plans. And here's the here's the crazy thing is that someone said vision without execution is hallucination, and and you can have you can have vision, you can communicate vision, you can make a plan, but if, but at the end, if it's not been executed, it's, it's all for, for nothing. And what is the critical point of execution of a diocesan plan or a diocesan vision? It's your priests. Yes. It's your priests. And here's another thing I would say to, to, to bishops. You can't bypass your priests. So often, because the starting presumption is we're all going to do this together, Remember I said, we talked about this last week. If the starting principle is we're going to come up with a strategy that we're, every parish and every priest is going to do it together, it's failed before you even started. Because guess what? It's never, ever going to happen. So because you don't get all the buy-in, uh, right away there's a sense of frustration. And it's like, these darn priests, they're making my life miserable. If only they'd do what I want them to do. And so uh, instead of working with the priest, the temptation then is to go around the priest and say, well, we'll go to the next level. We'll work with the, the lay leaders and the ministry leaders and the parish staff who do have the heart for it. But the truth is, it's not so much that the priests don't have a heart for it, is that they're so overwhelmed. They're, 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 they're drowning. It's like the, they barely get their heads above water and, and it's like, here, do this and do this and have this plan and, and do, do this. So it's, I always say, instead of going around priests, come around the priests. Because you can't bypass the priests, and and the priests are the the, the principal collaborators of the bishop in the, the very priesthood of the bishop, and and he, he's he's a father and a brother to them, and and you you can't bypass bypass your peace your priests. Ron you used to always say to me, you got to know who your customers are. You come out of the sales world, mm, and absolutely. who are the first customers of a bishop? Is his priests? Yeah. His priests. Yeah. And, and just like when I was in the pharmaceutical industry, I would I would have a goal. Uh, for my sales that year and I would know that well who where am I going to invest my time and energy and resources where I'm going to get my biggest return and and that's no different in ministry it's no different for you as a pastor and I would suggest it's no different for bishops and so who where are the opportunities to get a big return uh, through our priests pastors hopefully we i would say the bishop invests in pastors and pastors invests in priests yeah and and to make parishes what they can be because here's the thing because often what happens in some dioceses is, is pastor uh, parishes are not doing what they're meant to do what does that mean they're not making they're not evangelizing they're not discipling they're not missioning people so all the th- only thing that's happening in parishes are sacraments and so the diocese says well i guess we better do something then so we will we will run a discipleship program or an enrichment program or adult education programs ourselves because the parishes aren't doing it. And once you do that, you're never going to get it back. Because if the diocese has that model, that instead of our job being to go out to the pastors and the parishes and make them great and help them to do what they're called to do, if they just use their diocesan staff to do it for the parishes, the parishes will never do it. And you communicate, You don't. all you have to do is... is is give sacraments. You don't have to do anything else because we're going to do it for you. And if you if you flip that on its head and begin to support parishes to make them come alive, then for those parishes that may not have the resources or may be struggling, 
instead of the diocese doing it for those smaller parishes, you can direct those parishes to to the model parishes and the healthy parishes you have within within your diocese. So I think that's a key thing. I think the time that we've got left, there's a few other little points that are not so much connected that we thought we would uh, we would touch on. Um, so I'm just looking. We've got a whiteboard here with some of our topics <laughs> up there, but I'm seeing uh, one of the things. Uh, that we have outlined here is, and I, I actually come up with this one. Uh, you can tell that this was a pastor's idea. Is that underlying principles around the diocesan assessment? Bum, now bum, bum, bum. we use the term assessment in our diocese, but in other dioceses, what is yeah? What, it's, what are you it's basically the tax. <laughs> it's that every every local parish mm. pays a, gives a portion of their income to support the mission of the diocese, mm-hmm. and that is very much reflective of our of our ecclesiology. We are we are one local church. Uh, we are the parishes are, are kind of cells of that local church, and the pastor is in communion with the, with the with, with the chief pastor, the, the the bishop. So that financial gift is 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 very much in in continuity with our theology. However, I think in most dioceses, I when I travel, I always ask priests about their how much you pay in in your diocesan tax and how is that structured and such. It's interesting. A lot of the 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 formula. The, the, the formulae that were used to, to assess how much a parish will, will pay to a diocese, I think were almost composed a long time ago, like 50 years ago. And they almost reflect a, a maintenance mentality. Let me just give you one example. And I just raised this this point for, for, for bishops. If you want to see as many parishes as possible in your diocese come, become healthy and, and missional, look at your assessment. What is your, is your assessment principles, are they... Furthering that goal or hindering that goal? Let me just give you one mm. simple example. In one particular diocese that I know of, monies that are taken in the collection and are put towards a building to make, to to either repair buildings or to build new buildings are not taxable. So in a sense, you can you can invest a certain amount in and in, in create and build buildings, and and that's you you almost get like a tax break in that. However, money that you use to hire staff to do evangelization and discipleship, i.e. to build the Church of Living Stones, the people of God to actually build people, that's entirely taxable. So if culture of an organization is revealed by what you reward and tolerate and punish, etc., think about it. In one sense, you could say that the underlying values of this assessment are rewarding buildings, the building and maintaining of buildings, and actually punishing investment in people. Hmm. And if you want... A maintenance parish, there's no shortcut. It's about people. You've got to invest in people, and that means hiring staff and doing evangelization and discipleship. And if you do that, you bet that, that more and more income is going to be generated by that parish, and more and more income will be passed down to the diocese in the long run. So I'm just raising that to look at the the, 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 the formulas. If we want missional parishes, yeah. we've got to help them. I'm actually surprised to hear that they're not standardized across dioceses. I would have expected no, that they no, would it's... be like, you know, oh, well, it's, you know, 10 points on every yeah. dollar goes right to. I, I expected that. It, it's not different. It's not uh, It's not standard in from diocese to diocese. And also within a diocese, it's like income tax. The, the higher income you have, the greater percentage of that upper bracket you pay. So in a sense, the more income that a parish brings in, the, the, the percentage-wise, it's not a fixed percentage that will change. And that's okay. I mean, that's doable. I mean, I think any healthy parish would have a desire. You can't have a parish. You've got to resist the temptation of seeing, you know, yeah. downtown as being the enemy or, you know, they're trying to, it's a big, they're trying to grab our money and they're trying to get as much of our money as possible and we're trying to give them as, as little amount of money as, as possible. We're, in, we're on the same side, we're on the yeah. same team, even though... I have to confess, as a pastor, I've sometimes struggled with that because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you you finally make that next hire. You've 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 cut corners and you're you got a pastoral plan, and then you get hit with the assessment, and it's more than you thought, and it's like, how are we going to pay for it? It's like, um, sometimes you feel like it's almost like you're getting punished for doing well, right? Uh, and it's difficult. So, in all the models that you've seen, do you have like have you come across one that you're like, ah, oh, that's a good one. We should that's one of my favorites, or is there just no, I, I, as far as I've seen to this point, and I've only got a limited experience in this, but every single assessment model is is totally based out of the church of the 1950s. For instance, uh, if you think about it, in a, a traditional parish in the past around here, you had a, a pastor, an associate pastor, say, say in the 50s, a pastor and a couple of curates, a, a cook and, and, a, and a housekeeper and a secretary. That was it. Mm-hmm. So basically, personnel-wise, is X amount of money needed to. You've got to maintain your building, maintain your rectory, and the, those core staff. And 
above and beyond that, if you brought in any other money, there's, the money wasn't going anywhere else except into the bank. Right. And so generally, okay, so when a diocese says, over and above this amount of money, we're going to have a heavier tax. Well, yeah, because it was in the bank. It was just sitting there. Who, who needs that kind of money? But if you're actually growing a staff and, and growing a culture of evangelization and, di- and, 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 and discipleship, that's that money over and above your bare minimum of, of staff is, is not going in the bank. It's being used to grow people. And guess what? When you invest in growing people, people grow. And bigger people need more attention and, and, mm-hmm. and, and resources. Like, like a consequence of health and growth are greater pastoral demands. Yeah. Which you need to be able to support. I mean, if if you're in a, a say you're in a dead church where only two percent of people are in ministry, but the thing comes to life and you eventually get to the place where you've got eighty. Imagine a situation you get sixty percent of your parishioners in ministry. Even supporting all of that, this absolutely by itself necessitates the hiring of more staff. So all I'm saying is to bishops and pastoral staff, if anyone is ever listening to this, is just look at what are the what did those uh, principles. Uh, how you do your 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 tax? What do they punish? What do they reward? It speaks your values. It speaks your what values. Do you value? That's right. buildings or, or... Do the, do what we here's the thing. We often say mm-hmm. in church circles today, we say we value evangelization. We value this. We value this. We value this. But then we've got these systems that that communicate the opposite value, and we've got to kind of close that gap. I find it fascinating because I think what you're you're talking about is before we've talked about how you have to invest in the pastors at the right parishes. Now you're saying like. Not only do you have to invest in the pastors at the right parish, but you have to make sure you don't handcuff them by letting the old systems, exactly, uh, which which limited us to like those you know four or five staff members that you, you rhymed off, that limited us to that. Because what I know what this place is like here at St. Benedict Parish, where you've got so many things happening that you couldn't possibly uh, manage it with five oh. five staff resources, right? I mean, like that that would be laughable. I mean, we'd have to to to, to scale back staff. We'd have to literally start shutting things down all the the, the life that, that's, that's going on mm-hmm. there's, in a sense there's no going back there's a momentum driving this thing forward uh, I'll give you an example you know I'm from originally from Scotland and the in the highlands of Scotland in the bleak winters uh, when the when the oatmeal was running thin uh, Highlanders and this is true Highlanders with families would have a cow and they'd actually bleed the cow. We have something called black pudding. Oh, so we would yeah. call it blood pudding, right? But basically when you're, say there was a, you know, you know, the crop had not been strong or whatever, you're still in the winter and you haven't been able to plant or reap. And you've got a family, you've got kids. So what do you do? They, they would bleed the cow and collect the blood and mix it with oatmeal and actually make this blood pudding. But the thing is, of course, if you bleed the cow too much, the cow dies. <laughs> you, don't get, you might be able to eat steak for a while, but uh, this cow that could have provided food for your family for, for, for 15 years is gone. Uh, but if you bleed enough gradually and, and don't take too much, you can, over the long run, get get 100 times more nourishment out of that cow than if you bleed it to death. And I just sometimes think that in parishes that are doing well, sometimes the tendency is to bleed those parishes so much that the health is actually impacted and the overall... Um, uh, the overall um, gifting that can come from that parish is is, is reduced, and mm-hmm. often as well, the what is bled from those parishes is often used to 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 sustain things that They're are crumbling dying. and dying. And it's almost like you know taking something that is healthy and yeah, throwing you're pruning it down. the wrong branch. Right? Yeah, I mean, ex- exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I, I think there's, but in general, the, this whole thing of maintenance to mission, I've realized more and more, it, it's not obviously just about parishes we know that there's a consequence for parish leadership when you move from maintenance to mission because everything changes and also there's a consequence in a diocese there's there's a consequence for being so-called successful if you get it right all of a sudden we're in trouble do you know why because all of our systems and our presumptions are not set up for that they're set up for either maintenance or to manage decline and and life actually creates a whole new set of problems that causes us <laughs> to reevaluate mm-hmm. all of our systems and how we do it. Awesome. Well, I think it's uh, it, for me it's a fascinating point. I didn't realize that there was so much detail in that, and I also think it would take a brave bishop to actually go in and try, start changing some of those systems. True. So just to credit to imagine this. I'm going to throw this out. Imagine a taxation system that said if you don't hire a director of evangelization and discipleship, yeah, exactly. we're going to tax you. We're, yeah. we're going to tax your inactivity. If you're just putting money in the bank and doing nothing, we're going to take your money because isn't that what Jesus did? Take the talents from him and give it to the guy who's got 10 talents mm-hmm. because he, di- he didn't bury his in the ground. 
imagine that. That would that would get things moving. People say we don't want to be taxed. Let's hi- let's hire a director of evangelization. And guess what? When you evangelize, when you evangelize adults uh, and make them disciples, they start giving and supporting the mission of the church. Amen. So I I think that this call to 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 seize our identity you know to to that we are missional we don't just have a mission we are a mission that has huge consequences for all of our systems not just at a parish level but at a diocesan level as well coaching, coaching pastors, pastors. <laughs> behind so, his head. Yeah, we, we, we have a list of things this is the final sorry about I think that. this is the final topic but ron why don't you say a little bit about that because ron you've been Coaching, you're coaching 20 pastors right now in their leadership teams. I, I meet with the priests online once a month in cohorts of four. It's been a wonderful experience, and we've learned a lot even in this first year. Why don't you say a little bit about the value of coaching into pastors? It's been a lot of fun. It's been really difficult. You know, I wish we had, you know, the top 10 secrets to a divine renovation, and the problem is there are none. It's hard work. And in fact, a lot of these pastors, we had a little break over Christmas, several of them said if they weren't in a coaching relationship with us, they actually would have thrown in the towel after Christmas because it's hard work. That accountability, the expectation to grow, the expectation to change lives, the expectation to have a healthy staff and a healthy culture and to lead differently is something that they did not get any training in. And so how are they going to become different in terms of their leadership and get different results unless we support them? And so it's been so much fun. And I just love the courage of the people that have joined our network and have partnered with us as we do this. It's so much fun and it's a lot of hard work and i would say to bishops if you do have a few people who you think are interested and have the capacity to come alongside of them with a coach makes all the difference in the world and to be honest with you i would even say to to bishops do you have a coach what would it look like if you were coached because it's it is a lot of fun hard work but a lot of fun but i think we all want the results we just don't know how to get them. Can you imagine if, if dioceses had uh, at least one full-time staff member who was huh, that's interesting. trained in leadership, who whose job was to be a field agent, to be out on the road, going into parishes, speaking to pastors, saying, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. How can we help you with your leadership? And that person giving coaching and helping that person and setting them up for success. That would be so amazing to... to to approach pastors on a one-on-one basis, not just your, you know, your 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 highly gifted guys that you've, had, whom you've identified, but every single priest. Because I always like to say that not every priest has the same leadership capacity, but every priest has the capacity to lead better. And when a priest leads better, everyone benefits. It's the gift that releases all the other gifts. Mm-hmm. And and what an what an incredible thing! What an incredible statement from a diocese to say, this is how we love and support our priests. That we want them to grow. In their, in their calling as leaders, because here's the interesting thing. We hear that the priest shares in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is in persona Christi Capitis. Uh, and often we, in Catholic circles, we use that term to talk about the priest when he celebrates the Eucharist. I was just reading a document from the Congregation of the Clergy uh, written, I think, in, in 2001. But it said that the priest actually exercises his ministry in persona Christi, not only when he celebrates sacraments, but also when he preaches the word of God. And also when he leads, when he leads. It's integral to priesthood. The bishop is the fullness of priesthood and we all need help with this. And so I think there's never been a time like this in the church where leadership has been more crucial because of the shifting sands around us and the incredible changes that have happened in society and we still cling to the models of the, the pastoral models of the past we need leaders we and and our priests are called to that that's part of their priesthood and we need to help them and so bishops if you're listening yeah that's a great the business world has gotten this right like the, the business world fundamentally understands that leadership is a thing it's something you actually invest in and that you pay attention to and that you nurture and it's not inherently part of our 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 culture inside of the church, right? We don't understand it in that way. And, and we're suspicious of it. It's like, well, that sounds very businessy and, very and spiritual. like you're a CEO of a company. And, and But the thing is, I've experienced my leadership here without, I mean, what it's integral to priesthood, preaching the word of God, celebrating the sacraments and leading. And, you know, one of the reasons why the, so many of the priests of our DR network are exhausted is, and I've challenged them on this, is like, 
if you're going to actually take on the role of leadership, because most of these, until you're intentional about leadership, guess what? You're probably not really leading all that much. You might be doing administration or management, but management is not leadership. And if you, leadership takes time and energy. And if you do take that on, what are you going to stop doing? You got to give something up. And many of our priests are, are really struggle with that, that they have to let go of, 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 of certain things and focus on what is integral to priesthood, preaching the word of God. Imagine every priest and bishop listening here, if you could double the time and energy you put into preaching. Sacraments is probably going to be remain the same, but if you could triple the time, if you could raise your leadership investment to about 25% of your, of your, of your total time, uh, what a difference that would make. Because when bishops lead better, uh, the diocese is going to be so blessed. And, and if a bishop can help priests to lead better, there would be an exponential impact. So to consider that kind of coaching. And we, we do, uh, we're almost through our first year of, of coaching parishes here at Divine Renovation Ministry. And hey, if there are any bishops listening, we'd love to, we'd love to give it a try. Uh, if, you're, if you're interested, that, I think it could be amazing. It's about just coming alongside you and helping you to lead better. So look, guys, I, this has been part two of the uh, the bishop uh, bishop topic themed podcasts. If people want to find more, well, first I'd like to say if any bishop actually ever does listen to these, which I don't know if they ever will, but we'd love to hear from you. Uh, drop us a line. Drop a line to Father James Mallon. <laughs> so, no, and no. if they're going to drop a line to Father James Mallon, where should they find you? Well, there's a contact page on divinerenovation.net. Okay, I was trying to cue you up for your Twitter account. We'll do it a different I don't way. Want people to what drop is me your like, Twitter account? Uh, Twitter account is at FJ Mallon. At FJ Mallon. At FJ Mallon. If you want to find Father James online, otherwise, feel free to go to the divinerenovation.net website and fill out a contact form, and we'll eventually forward it to him. Uh, <laughs> Ron Huntley, if people want to find more of you, where should they find you? A Twitter at Ron underscore Huntley. Not his middle name. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. My name is Dan O'Rourke. You can find me on Twitter at Dan O'Rourke. Uh, for all things Divine Renovation, check us out at divinerenovation.net. If you feel called to support us financially, there's an opportunity there on our webpage to do so. Oh, and we forgot something, Dan. What did we forget? We forgot about our priest internship program. Oh, yeah. So, bishops, hey, before you, before you push... That's a good point. That's Before you push that pause, that stop button on this podcast, we've actually have a, a formal uh, priest intern program here at St. Benedict Parish, and we would love, uh, there, there can be six months to a year, we'd love to have a conversation. Check out the video on divinerenovation.net. We've had a couple interns already. It's yep. gone extraordinarily well, both for us and for them. And perhaps uh, you perhaps you, uh, you who are listening might feel called to that intern, internship opportunity, or perhaps you're a bishop who who has someone in, their, in mind that might be a good fit. So check us out, divinerenovation.net, been good guys, and I can't wait till next time. Bye for now. God bless.